KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Tom Rickert. Jim Pascaret is a Council Rock High School grad. He's an Eagles fan. And he just happens to have retired in May after a 38-year career in the Army where they knew him as General Pascaret. He's worked in cities and countries all over the world, but the most recent few years of his career were spent serving in the Pentagon as Deputy Chief of Staff of the Army G8 and as Commander of the United States Army Japan immediately before that. I've had the great privilege of talking with him several times over the years, but mostly at weddings and funerals and holidays, we're both fortunate enough to be part of the same beautiful, extended, modern family through in-laws and marriages, and it's very complicated. But I asked him if he'd be willing to sit down with me on the record for a couple minutes, and he said yes. We talked about his career, from Cold War West Germany to the Pentagon during the coronavirus pandemic. And I also got to ask him how nearly four decades in the Army shaped his views on leadership, mentorship, service, and humility. I feel super weird uh, calling you Jim, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say General Pascaret to start out with <laughs> All right, we're going to end this right now if you start <laughs> calling me General Pascaret, okay? We have uh, had great times at weddings together for the last couple of few months and dancing and enjoying family and friends. So I demand, I order you as a former general officer to call me Jim. Uh, all right, sounds good. <laughs> um, Jim, we're, we're recording this right around Veterans Day. It'll probably come out a couple days later. Um, so you know, first, thank you for, for choosing to spend your career and so much of your life in the service of the United States. And uh, w- what a career, ne- nearly 40 years in the U.S. Army. You've worked all over the world. It's been, what, barely six months since you retired, just about? Yes. Uh, first, Tom, uh, thanks for doing this today. Uh, it's, a, it's an honor to spend some time with you and for, for what, everything you do for KYW, for uh, getting these kind of stories out. And thank a lot of you and Michelle and, and congratulations on what's in your future together. Um, yeah, so my last job in the Army was in the Pentagon up in D.C., obviously, and I was the uh, a three-star general on the Army staff. And I had a retirement ceremony, was able to have my kids come in, and we did that at the very end of May. And I actually, my last day in the Army was 31 July, a couple of months later, right at a transition period there, and that was uh, 38 years uh, in the Army. How was that transition to retirement? Have you Have you gotten used to it yet? Yeah, I think I have actually. I, there, we, I went to a transition course in April. Liz and I, my wife, uh, we did it in April. We'd done it another one in 2016, and before I really knew what my timeline was, and did one in April where you really kind of focused because we knew we only had a couple more months in the army. And there's all kind of war- warnings, and I guess some general officers or folks that have served a long time in uniform go through this really depressive period, or uh, I, I don't know. A, a challenge with transitioning from something you've done so long in life and then you put your heart and soul and blood and sweat and tears into. Uh, I didn't feel that. Uh, it was different, but I was really, and I, I guess uh, I've never been a nostalgic person. If I, I describe it as uh, I've all, I, I wouldn't want to do anything else. Uh, the army was the second best decision I ever made after getting married uh, to Liz. But uh, as soon as it was was done and I took off the uniform, we were excited about all the opportunities and what's ever ahead for the rest of our lives together. So it has not been as 
challenging, Tom, as I thought it would be, or it might have been based on these stories you heard. But I would, but it is different, but in a good way. And so I think we're in a good place right now. We are really thrilled about whatever's next in our future. I want to ask you so many questions about the work you've done in your career. You you retired as deputy chief of staff of the Army G8, previously served as commander of the U.S. Army Japan. I, I'm speaking for myself, but also probably a lot of other civilians who think who think we have stressful jobs at times. I I realistically, you know, can't even comprehend that level of responsibility. What what does a good day or a bad day at work look like when you're at the deputy chief of staff level or, or commander of the U.S. Army Japan? Well, I'd say bad days in those jobs are usually self-imposed because if you're not careful, you forget you have an incredible bunch of people right at your side working with you. And if you start and put all the pressure on yourself that you have to personally produce or lead or whatever, it's because you've lost touch with the fact that those people that are right with you are just as committed to the profession and to whatever the challenges are you're dealing with. And I've had to check myself with that over my career is once or twice you feel like, oh my gosh, I'm not sure if I'm realizing the Peter principle right now. I've gotten promoted to a position to where I'm incompetent. But what I would say a good day in the Pentagon or in these jobs I've had at the strategic level. um, First, I made sure I made time every day to do physical fitness. That was usually starting that first thing in the morning. So if I had an early morning start at work, I got up really early. And to me, that was just resilience for me. And to to sweat early in the morning, it gets your brain working. You start thinking about things. So whether good or bad day, I always started with physical fitness early. And then, you know, I'd say on the average, I'd get into work after, you know, breakfast, uh, get into work at a 730-ish or to 8. And I already had a staff in there waiting kind of getting me going. But then I, it was back-to-back meetings and really important stuff where guys rolling in. And as the G8, Tom, what I would des- how I would describe it, uh, Army staff is big. Okay, it's led by the chief of staff of the Army, a four-star general. I was a three-star. And there's probably seven or eight, ten three-stars on the staff that lead big organizations. And in the G8, I was responsible for resources, another way of saying money, and requirements, which is requirements are on the material side, like uh, equipment, Tom, where we need, we have a capability gap. Well, before you can try and fill that gap, you have to define what the requirement is we need. Now, listen, I'm not going to drag into my world, but it was a lot of detailed back and forth between organizations across the army where we brought it into the Pentagon and we put a nail in it. This is a requirement that we must develop and working with industry and these developers. So that was a lot of my time. And then the last thing is analysis. So resource requirements and analysis. I had these high-end, highly educated analysts that could look at uh, hard problems and provide recommendations to senior leaders for decision. So most of my day was working with these kind of diverse, highly educated, committed, hardworking, both uniformed and civilians that I led, which is about five or 600 people inside of GA. And um, it was not glorious. It was not, I would say, fun, but I liked it. Uh, 
I won't strip and trip into the term loved it. Uh, it was hard. Uh, other parts of the army I really loved when you're out there mm-hmm. with soldiers on the line. But I, because of the people and because I knew it was important and you had a sense of service and all those things that come together to make it really rewarding as a person. And just at that point in life, we felt really as a family lucky to be living in D.C. because Liz had her family in Philadelphia. That's all still up there around where you are. My mother that was is still alive and a brother live in North Carolina. So in D.C., we're like halfway between. And so when you're in the Army, to be anywhere near family is just kind of luck. And so to have that last tour in the Army with aging parents and other things going on, it was good for us to be there at our point in life. I'm, I'm glad you talked about uh, the G8 workforce. I think that's a part of the Army that not many people uh, know a ton about. I, I certainly didn't. But if you look at any organization, the infrastructure is is the most important part. It's not necessarily the people that uh, are the most public facing. Yeah, just to expand on that a little bit, I, I think people think if you're in the army, you just are dealing with soldiers all the time. In fact, we have in the Pentagon, it was about a 50-50 mix of soldiers, people in uniform, and they were all officers in G8. I had no non-commissioned officer enlisted soldier. They were all officers. Um and then you had these Department of the Army civilians, and then you had some contractors, and there was this mix of professionals. And uh, for, soldier, for some of the soldiers, it's the first time they interacted with Department of the Army civilians is, is when they're in the Pentagon. And that's a little bit of an adjustment. You're down there usually around just soldiers all the time, and you, it's a different culture. But then when you bring in this Department of the Army civilian team and soldiers together to work these strategic issues, uh, the best officers realize they don't have it figured out. And these civilians have been working these issues. They see guys in uniform come and go, and they're working that same hard problem for years. And so uh, it's a great, to me, it's a great team when they come together because you need guys from the field coming in and say, I know you're working this problem. Here's what's really happened out in the real army. So a solution to this thing needs to be kind of along this line. So that's how we uh, are organized. And yes, the infrastructure, the people, aspect of it is critical. It's the most important, uh, I think, of, for any organization, uh, I think, is having quality committed uh, a workforce. I was talking to a buddy of mine about the biggest differences um, in life after the military, and he said, well, I, I haven't moved in two years, so so that's a thing. <laughs> the uh, <laughs> The short version of your army bio lists at least 10 or 12 different places you've worked. Uh, a reliable source told me the number of moves might be closer to two dozen. Uh, many states, several different countries, Korea, Iraq, Japan. If, if you can think back to early on in your career, do you have any really strong memories about serving in West Germany before the Berlin Wall fell? Is there anything that sticks out to you? Well, uh, just to back up a little, even before that, maybe Tom, if it's okay. Please. I mean, I didn't have a real plan to get in the army. I'm, I think my story is very familiar to others. Uh, I got an ROTC scholarship halfway through college because uh, I got a letter from my mother. I still remember it. You know, it was before emails and texting and stuff. And the letter basically said, you know, we wrote letters all the time. And uh, he said, hey, listen. I think she knew I was kind of floundering, like her floating, not sure what I was going to do. Uh, but also, my brother's a year younger than me, uh, was really smart. Mark went to Albright out in Reading, not far from you, and he had aspirations to be a doctor. I think my parents looked at the 
bank account in medical school and stuff and said, Hey, Jim, what, you know, I think it'd be really good if you go down to ROTC <laughs> and see if you can't uh, get a scholarship to pay. Cause I was in a private school down in South Carolina. I, it was 7,000 a year back then. This is in the uh, early 1980 or something, which seems like, wow, what a freebie. But back then that was kind of a big deal. You know? So uh, just despite my mom, I went down to the ROTC department about a week later, I had a scholarship for the last few years, even before I really kind of realized what I was getting into. So I get in the army, I get commissioned after I graduate college as a part of ROTC. And I go to the basic course at Fort Knox. I got commissioned an armor officer uh, tanks. And then I get these orders. And back then, Tom, during the Cold War, we had about 250,000 soldiers in West Germany. It's hard to imagine today. Uh, but that's where the big fight was going to be. Nobody wanted it, but you had the, the inter-German border. And uh, a lot of tanks were over there because if that war was ever going to happen, it was going to be a lot of armored units fighting between the Soviets and the NATO forces. So I got orders for there, went over to West Germany. I wasn't married. I was dating my wife that's downstairs right now but um it was I, I absolutely loved it first germany was a great country um but we worked really hard we were in the field training for world war three in mock wars and stuff and every one of the, uh, the i'll come back up to that but we also played hard we had there was a lot of camaraderie at units who were stuck over there far from home as a young person and uh, you didn't speak german now germans were nice but mostly when you spent your time together and you got very tight as a unit what was different back then too tom at the every end of every exercise uh, we've been in the field for two or three weeks either shooting gunnery or out maneuvered in this maneuver training the maneuver training always ended in something called a strike warm. It would come over the radio down through, and I was a, like a tank platoon leader or a company. And it was, listen, we're going nuclear. The Soviets have broken through. So back your tank, the, the strike will happen at this azimuth, this many kilometers away. And so the battle drill was you kind of oriented your tanks direct because the most armor on a tank is at the very front. So you put your tank in the ground on low ground, you turn the turret over the back, you brought your food in, you took your antennas off, your water, and you waited for the big explosion. But you know what? We loved it because that meant we were going out of the field and we were going to get a good, be able to go get a shower. <laughs> so we love going nuclear. But I, what I would say is Americans, young people can't imagine that world today, that nuclear war was in the solution set of possible outcomes, and we trained for it. We had the army had nuclear weapons back then that shot a missile and, and blew up. So I uh, that was an aspect that's much different today. But I would say that first duty station over there, and I got married halfway through it with Liz, and she spent the last couple of years in Germany with me. I would plan, like a lot of people, do my first tour, pay my I owed the army four years, I'd get out, get in the business world, I had a business degree, and you know, live happily ever after, live someplace have kids in the same town and grow up and uh well down maybe i don't know uh but i absolutely love the army i say man let's give this another try let's try another duty station see if it's just as good as this and uh so we went on to other places and before i know it i'm retiring with 38 years in the army so i i think it was uh and i, I think there's studies to it because the leadership was really good in that organization and there's, we've looked at it and we've had highs and lows of retaining young officers over time. And it's all tied to leadership at that first unit. 
I'm talking like at the battalion level, which is about an organization, five or 600 soldiers in, you know, companies or whatever split up. But if you have a really good battalion commander, that's uh, a great leader, uh, you're looking up to that guy as the lieutenant says, you know what, I might be really interested in doing that uh, in the future as for my profession, grow up in the army. And, and I had a really uh interesting good leaders and my company commanders again the captains i was a lieutenant they were phenomenal so that's how i ended up staying in the army because that first impactful experience when i was a brand new 22 year old showing up in west germany in 19 i guess it was january of 84 when i showed up over there i graduated college in the summer of 83 went through training and showed up in there in january 84 and absolutely love it but thanks for telling i hadn't thought about west germany in a long time but i would say I think most folks that served in the Cold War, um, they, it's kind of like when Kennedy was assassinated, 9-11, you knew where you were and what you were doing when you heard the wall came down. Mm -hmm. And I, I was on a tank range at Fort Hood, Texas, as a captain in 89, when we got where the wall came. And it was like, wow, I thought we would be living in this cold world for the rest of my life. It kind of smacked me right between the eyes. And the world changed literally overnight. And uh, it took the army a long time to figure that out, but yeah, it was, it was a little bit. It was a, it was a big surprise for a lot of people. Okay, I'm sorry, I kind of went on too long there. Back to you. That that was awesome. My grandfather talked about West Germany a lot. He drove a tank through uh, many many years ago. He drove a tank wow. through France and and in Germany. And wow, uh, interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Um, your dad was a was a sailor, right? Right. Did did he well, ever rib you about joining the army? <laughs> I, you know, my dad was in the Navy for two years from 59 to 61. He graduated college in 59 uh, from Duquesne University over on the other side of the state from where we were at with a business degree. But his father, my grandfather, had served in World War One in the army. And I think my dad felt a uh, need to serve based on because it was such a important part of my grandfather's life was serving in World War One, And so my dad enlisted for for two years, and he was actually deployed on an aircraft carrier. He's enlisted personnel guy. When I was born in 1961, uh, he was not home. So my mom was with her parents in Florida, and my dad gets a telegram saying, hey, congratulations, you're a father. I was the oldest of four kids. <laughs> And he gets out and does very well. He's was highly successful in the business world. He passed away about a year and a half ago. But uh, so when I got in the army, uh, he, he never really ribbed me, but he was very proud of his Navy career. I was a career, his experience. I think it was very informative and impactful for him as he moved into the business world. And really for the end of his days, he had great things to say about the Navy. I will say he came to see me when I was a, Lieutenant, I think, in West Germany. I had a bad back. It was really at the time and had a back operation over there. But my dad was worried about me. He came and visited. I was, but he saw me down in the motor pool around a bunch of tanks and in this tank battalion I was in. And he was really struck by the interaction between me as an officer and the enlisted guys that worked for me. There's 15, 16 guys in the tank platoon, including the lieutenant here, which I was. And, you know, that we would talk to each other and we kind of rib each other and stuff. And uh, my dad said, wow, when I was on a, a ship, a Navy ship, you never initiated a conversation with an a naval officer. 
that that was way out of bounds for the enlisted people, especially junior enlisted. That it, so it, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just culturally how different the services are. So he was struck by how close we were. Uh, and I think it's just really how army units fight versus you, how you do it working on a naval combatant ship. It's much different. So my dad was, I'm sure, proud of me. Um, he never really ribbed me, but he was struck by the difference in the cultures of the army and the navy when he had when he always would visit me throughout the year so i guess i i leave it at that i was very proud of my dad's service that uh that he would do that after college when he was ready to move off and he had a brand new wife and all that stuff so it's not for everybody you yeah you talked about you were dating your wife when your 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 wife now when you were in west germany um you two met very early. Was it at Council Rock High School or, or, or previous to that? Actually, Newtown Middle School. Newtown Middle School. <laughs> Which uh, used to be Council Rock High School back in like the 50s. But yeah, I, uh, I met Liz. Um, we're actually going to be kind of related here when you get married officially, I think, because uh, I don't know. I have to, it, you have to draw a re- weird wire diagram about how we are <laughs> five times removed related, Tom. But uh, yeah, so we uh, went then to Council Rock High School when there was only one. There's a north and a south now. But uh, And I played basketball and she was a cheerleader. I played basketball. I grew up with Jay Wright, who uh, he's the most successful guy in our high school class <laughs> when he went on to Nova there. But uh so, yeah, so we had known each other. We went to different colleges. And then after I got in the uh, Army about a month, I was in the Army about two years or so, one before, you know, we got married and she came over to West Germany. And again, it was the best decision in my life to get married to Liz and, and enjoy life together. We, we, we talked a little bit about the bookends of your, of your career. I'm wondering if, I know this is a very difficult kind of question to answer offhand, um, but I'm hoping that you've done some <laughs> ref- reflection as a recently retired person. What what would you see as your greatest accomplishments in your career? And and I'm also wondering what you're most proud of and whether there's any intersection between those two. Um, I think the thing I'm most proud of is the fact that I still have folks, but over time that I had guys that work for me reach out and want to stay connected and ask me advice about, hey, um, I got this two opportunities in the Army. Should I go left or right at the Y in the road? And so I think that's what I'm most proud of is that uh, the folks I've led, uh, and you don't get to pick and choose. You know, you're told you're going to this unit. It's just whoever is by chance who you're working for or working with. But I made a lot of connections where they had the trust and confidence over time to continue to ask me for advice. And it makes you feel good, you know, as a leader that you feel like, well, I must have had a good impact on them. Not sure what I did to earn that, but uh, I think I I value that the most rather than saying, well, you know, when I led this unit, we had the best whatever. I think that's kind of self-serving. Just about every unit I was lucky enough to lead, we had great leaders and we did did well as a team because of the circumstances allowed us to all be together and we were self, not self-serving or anything. I think we got it pulled together. I think the most rewarding job I had was probably as a tank battalion commander in 1st Cavalry Division, just because that's the, that's a job, you know, if I could have 
It's one of those like self-actualize. <laughs> I never really had aspirations to be a battalion commander when you're young. I just kind of put my nose down. If you work hard, you'll get an opportunity to do something next. And it's an upper out system in the army. You have if you're not doing well, if you don't get promoted, whatever, you, you got to get out. It's not like, well, I really like the army. It says, I know, but you haven't gotten promoted and you're not so we're gonna ask you kindly to leave. Uh, but I so I, but being a tank battalion commander where uh, it's this job where at the end of a week, you can look back and say, man, we got a lot of stuff done. Uh, Monday morning, when I talk to you all in the motor pool, it says by Friday afternoon, when we're about ready to call a weekend, here's the 17 things we got to get done to get ready for this big deployment or whatever. And you can see the fruits of your labor. And you know all this, there's about 600 folks in the tank battalion, I think. And you get to know over time, all your soldiers. And there's a lot of tightness and camaraderie. Now, when I commanded a brigade uh, a couple of few years later and we deployed to Iraq, there's about 5,000 soldiers in a brigade, four or five, I don't remember what it was. It's different. You, you, you know, you can say on a Monday morning, okay, by Friday, we're going to get the, I want to, and it's not done. <laughs> it's just because there's so much going on and you don't have direct impact. And the higher you get up, you see that you have to have a lot more patience in saying, I want something done because it's not going to get done. Listen, your units are getting pulled below you 17 ways and you got to pick and choose what's important and have a lot of patience to get there. I think is the art of leadership, the higher you get. Uh, but being, that was the most enjoyable job. Uh, and fun. I mean, some guys, I think they struggle commanding units because they don't, they don't enjoy it. It's, it's work to them. And if you feel like you're working in a command job and you're not enjoying the, the opportunity and the privilege of being a commander, then I think you're probably shortchanging your unit too, because they can sense it. Nobody wants to work around somebody that feels like it's drudgery, what they're doing. And you have, they have to feel like you're enjoying it and you're a positive person and you're, you're out for their best interests on, on the way of also making sure the mission happens. So again, I'm not sure I, I directly address that because I hadn't really thought about it, but uh, that's my thoughts. The pandemic has been really tough for people. Uh, a lot of people have been dealing with burnout, lots of stress, instability. How have soldiers been doing over the past two years? In my little part of the army, what we did, middle of March, whatever that day was that, you know, the NCAA basketball tournament shut down and all that other stuff that would have to kind of say, Hey, wow, this, this is really kind of a big deal. This is different. Um, what we did overnight is again, there's 500 and something guys in G8. I came back. I remember got, I got the two stars together that worked for me. I have three different two star level guys that worked underneath me, got them all together and say, Hey, I, don't, I got some guidance. Like we all need to get out of here. I don't have much more than that, but apparently all, all of us being in the Pentagon is like high risk right now. And so I let them kind of figure it out initially because I gave them some general guidance. And listen, two stars generals are pretty squared away. I didn't need to be very pedantic on here's exactly how to do it. I gave them this, listen, I need you to manage your workforce. Come back to me and let's talk about what, what you think. And so they put out the net call and pretty much overnight we went to about 80% of the people out of the Pentagon, and then only the 20% that had to keep the trains running uh, started going. I, I never missed a day in the whole pandemic I was in. Um, but we went, you know, we had to figure out how to 
do distributed operations, we didn't have the, the capability for people to work remotely initially from home like we should have. And even on the, the low side, the, the unclassed side, and a lot of our work is secret. It's on the secret side. So the guys that were having to come in, we had about 30% that were, but it wasn't the th same 30%, Tom. They were coming in and out of the Pentagon every uh, depending on what had to be done on the classified network. Uh, and so um, we eventually figured out have some classified capability outside and that allowed us to operate. But yeah, it provided, there's more stress on the force because of that in my little world. Um, I left while we were still at a 30% uh, you know, cap of who we should have in there. And it wasn't closely monitored, it was general guidance. And I, I saw the statistics every day. There were times and surges when we were having, we were 40% or so because it was just really busy time. But uh, yeah, I, I saw, and then in the middle of that was 2020 and some of the terrible events like the Floyd murder, and which caused a lot of reflection about where we are and systemic racism and those kind of things that on top of having a distributed workforce. So how do you go through this review of uh, institutional racism and the top of a pandemic? And the, the guidance was we've got to get our arms around this and listen to our are people of color that's on the workforce and they're you know we're overrepresented in the army compared to society with uh, minorities and so you know that's the great thing about the army personally is uh it is not a bunch of white guys like me that's in there it's a great mix of everybody in society but in greater numbers and, and you know while that all worked together so that was a big event we had to work on top of that I would say out there, you know, there is a mandate for soldiers that have to get, they have to get vaccinated. I'm talking, I have a direct line into soldiers. I have two of my kids are in the army and it's interesting to listen to them. One's a troop commander of a cavalry troop and he has a soldier or two that are, uh, you know, pushing back and, you know, but there's tools that commanders have. They have to make a decision. If they want to be in the army, they have to get vaccinated. If not, you know, you can find another thing to do for your life. So that, there's that stress, I think, that's out there uh, in the uh, in the force that I don't sense because I'm just not in that part of the Army anymore. There's other guys that are better qualified, I think, to talk about what is it happening out there in a tank company or infantry company now. But my other son's in an infantry company, and, and he's enlisted. So it's interesting to hear the enlisted guys take on it, uh, on folks that are pushing back on the vaccine. But uh, by and large, I think most people vote in their own self-interest, and if they really like the army, they're going to probably join the vaccine club. But we'll have to wait and see. All right, I'm not sure if that answered that or not. If you want to pull another thread there, no, I, I think I think that addressed it really well. Um, every November, I think people keep the military a little more forward in their minds because of Veterans Day, and. Um, I think for the average person, you know, you, you see, you see, I see a lot of salute our, our, our troops backgrounds on Facebook photos or, or you're at the airport and, and people say, you know, th thank you for your service. And I, I think everyone really means well, um, everybody has good intentions, but at the same time, it, it, sometimes it feels a little bit like this one day a year. We really think about our military and, and we thank our veterans. But the other 364 days a year, you know, most people probably aren't thinking about pay raises or, or how the VA is treated. I, I'm wondering if you have any feelings about that. If, if, if the way that, that we think about 
the military is healthy? Um, yeah, it's a complex issue. I've always been a little uncomfortable in an airport or something when, when I was in uniform traveling from A to B and somebody wanted to buy me coffee or something. And best of intentions. I always said thank you. It was always gracious. But I worry a little bit. At first, I think we're incredibly well supported by the American people. We are lucky. We, I'm not, um, I guess, as a veteran, but really when I was on active duty, uh, there have been times in our nation's history where, uh, you know, the citizens did not, were not overly gracious or supportive of the military. And really, frankly, the military, probably the government, you know, and the military, there we lied to the American people in Vietnam War, what was happening. And so there's a blowback to that. Unfortunately, that impacted individual soldiers, you know, instead of the policymakers and the folks that were running the government at the time should have been the focus of people's ire, but it manifested itself by turning on individual soldiers. But today, I would say uh, the military, you know, the U.S. military is still ranks every year as the most trusted profession in our society. Uh, it's taken some hits uh, here and there, but when everybody, you know, when you rank it with teachers and Congress and the media and everything else, by and far, the military is always the top, and then this kind of goes down below that. But I, as I said, I've always been kind of a my worry is that soldiers, we we start and feel entitled, or that that is the standard we we should we. And why, I mean, no, you, you have to earn that every day, and you can't take that for granted. And you should be very, you should never expect it uh, because once you start and feel as a person in the uniform that you're better than the average citizen, that's not good. Uh, we serve the American people we, uh, and we support the Constitution of the United States, uh, but we're no better than the average person that's not in uniform. But all this graciousness to me, if you're not careful, you start and feel like, wow, I'm better than the average guy, the taxpayer out there that's supporting me being in uniform. And that has a deleterious effect on, I think, our society in general. I think it does on the military when you start and feel like you're privileged or that you're entitled because you wear a uniform. And so I, I, I'm wary of that. I think uh, uh, we should support our military, but we have to make sure the military earns that respect and they are looked at as citizens that are in uniform, not a higher level of citizens because they serve in uniform. There's probably a book to be written about that or something. And I'm not sure I'm in the majority on that, but it's always made me uncomfortable uh, while at the same time being gracious for people's support. For people out there who really, really care and want to help support the veterans that come back from service. And like you, like you mentioned, there are a lot of people in this country who really care. Is there a, is there a thing you'd recommend they do in an organization or a cause that's, that's worth supporting that can actually make a difference for it, for veterans coming back? Well, a couple of things, the United services organization, I think is a great program there. You'll, you'll see them at every first, they have like scholarships and grants and stuff for kids of, of the military that are trying to go to college that can't afford it. But if you ever go or fly through the airport, there's always a USO location. It's all based on donations. 
so that a soldier that's dragging his duffel bag, getting ready to deploy somewhere for a year overseas, uh, he can go into a place where people are like him and get a free Coke and watch TV for young people. They usually have video games and that kind of stuff to blow the time until their flight's called. And so it's a nice break for soldiers to, to uh, who are kind of going from A to B and also to support their families. The other one that I'm fairly familiar with, and it's an Army program, it's called Army Emergency Relief. And that is really, it's about soldiers helping soldiers, but a, any citizen can donate to it. Uh, having commanded like a units and stuff where you have young soldiers, they got married, they got a couple kids, you, you know, they're not making a whole lot of money. And then they have some crisis happens in their life, a uh, relative dies. And uh, that was, uh, and they, they want to, they need to fly home for the funeral or somebody's very sick or something. They don't have it in their bank account to pick up and they can't leave their, you know, so they can get a grant or they can get a zero interest loan through AER to, for, for, for and there's a criteria what constitutes a quote emergency where they can get this, this money, but it's a, it's an it's a resource for commanders to say, listen, I think this soldier is it could use help from AER because of what's happened in his life due to no fault of his own, and uh, it allows that soldier to do what people would have better means can do as a matter of course. And so those are both uh, that are probably not well known, but are great ways to contribute and help soldiers uh, that I, and I, I'm using the term soldier liberally, it should, I should say military folks uh, out there for, to consider. Great. But thanks for asking that. In your retirement ceremony, um, you said that you felt a little like Forrest Gump, that you were blessed <laughs> by good luck and timing. Um, yeah. You talked a lot about how good luck and timing helped you advance through the army, but you also talked at length about the importance of humility in uh, in leadership, and and just knowing you a little bit, and I, for anyone who's who's been listening, <laughs> um, you you have to be one of the most down to earth, humble people I know. And I think just looking around, it's really easy to find leaders, politicians, CEOs, bosses, and it seems like empathy and humility are words they don't really prioritize in their day to day. Uh, but it seems like you disagree with that as a as a leadership strategy. Why is that? Well, a couple of things. Uh, just back on a long career in the army, I do think a lot of it was based on good luck and timing. And it's not false humility to say that. I had uh, you could see what would happen. And what an example of that is, I remember coming out of Fort Leavenworth. You go to school there as a major, and then you're in the army about ten years. And with all these, there's about a thousand majors that all go to school for a year. It's called the best year of your life. You've been really running hard. And they send you to Leavenworth for a year with your family and you go to school for a year. You, you have to read some books and you go to, and you talk about it in class. And uh, But it should get you a break. But what I found, we all graduated from there and you go off to really hard jobs as majors and units again. And I was lucky enough to go and work for folks that weren't about them getting promoted, but helping to grow those people, to nurture them, to get them, uh, uh, you know, promoted themselves. Uh, I didn't see, I saw that to my left and the right and units right next door were like my classmates one. And the leader over there was more about himself and not. Uh, so that is some of the good luck 
uh, aspects of it. I just really work for great leaders. Uh, and then the timing thing is just, uh, I was able to get some really important jobs just through timing. An example, I was a tank company commander in Korea. It is in 1991 when uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait and then the whole desert storm and everything. I was stuck there in Korea. The army sends two captains to Harvard every year to get a master's degree. Well, the whole, most of the army was deployed, getting ready to fight the Iraq war over there. I was stuck in Korea. Out of the blue, guy calls me on the phone and says, hey, how about, can you go to Harvard, I was going to go do something else when I got out of command. And I think, yeah, how do I do that? You know, and uh, it's just, it was that's timing. Everybody that was probably they had all great guys lined up, but they all were stuck in their tank or whatever in Kuwait or really in Saudi Arabia at the time. And so I just that and obviously that was a great experience and getting a master's degree from Harvard. That Who would have thought but that was just good luck and timing? Well, it, it's a long way of saying you should be humble about how you get where you're at. Um, don't think it's because you personally are great. If you read your efficiency reports, and I don't know what they do there at KYW, if you get an annual efficiency report, you get them in the Army. And my God, I'm incredibly great person. If you read what your boss or your, your boss's boss write about you, how could I not be the best soldier in the history of you? But then when you look around, everybody looks great on their efficiency report. Okay. So if, but if you start and read that and believe it, you start and lose that humility and you don't have empathy for those that work around you. And I think, and it's transparent to those that, that you lead. Uh, and so I really do believe that, uh, a humble servant leader uh, that has empathetic to those they lead. Cause you're, you're in the worst case leading folks and make given directions to take that hill uh, with every intention, you know, that's the mission. You have to do it, but probably not everybody's going to make it through without at least getting hurt, if not killed. And if you're not, if you're working for somebody that doesn't have some empathy when you're making those decisions, it's not saying you're not going to make it. You're going to have to because the, it's always the mission is the most important thing. You have to make decisions with the mission in hand, even when that means losing those that work for you. Uh, so if you don't have those that ingrained, it's not sincere. It's not in your core how you lead people. I think you're uh, a lesser effective leader. And people will not, I think when it matters most, they won't give their all for you or for the mission when it matters. Uh, and again, I'm rambling a little bit about this, but I'm passionate about it. And listen, I've talked about leaders in the army, like there's a bunch of bad words. My God, no, there's so many great leaders. Just, it's hard to find a bad one, but there's, there's differences on the margins when it comes to empathy, when it comes to humbleness, that to me, uh, I think those that are humble and empathetic are a better leader than those that lack that a little. Over your career, it's probably not exaggerating to say tens of thousands of soldiers have looked up to you in in su some way. Um, many gotten advice, words of words of wisdom from you as a as a commanding officer, as someone to um, to look up to. Who do you look to for advice, for for inspiration? Who who are your role models? Most of them looked up to me because I'm 6'3". Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 
Yeah, so I have been lucky to lead in the thousands of soldiers, I guess, over time, when you figure if I would ever reflect upon that. I have a few people that I, uh, you know, in mentorship at the Army is really important. You'll, you'll have, I mentor a lot of people, and it's not a formalized system, Tom. It's uh, over time, you have a relationship, you've led somebody or you've been led by someone, and you maintain that relationship over time. And it's so easy today in the electronic uh, information age, where in the past, you know, it was really harder to sustain. But today, uh, I guess the guy who I, I, I look up to the most is a guy named, he's retired now, but he's a four-star retiree named uh, Vince Brooks. He was the first African-American uh, first captain at West Point in the class of 1980. And so he's been, he was a trailblazer with that. But, uh, and I, I worked for him first back in like 1999. I was a major and he was a colonel. But then I had successive, uh, I worked for him in Hawaii in a couple of different jobs. I worked for him when I was in Japan. He was my boss. Uh, he went on, he finished up his career as the four star in, in uh, Korea, running that crazy operation there with KJU shooting missiles and stuff. But uh, he was somebody that uh, was an inspirational leader, incredibly intelligent, humble uh, leaders I talked about, empathetic. Uh, and so uh, I've always said, he's who I want to be one day when I grow up. <laughs> And he's uh, my, I think, one of my most important mentors. And, and out of the blue, he just wrote me a note. And, and it was uh, it was less than a week ago. And I was busy just doing some stuff. And I get a note. Hey, Jim, Vince here. Just checking on you. How are you doing? Uh, that most four stars, they wouldn't take the time to do that. Or most senior, senior leaders, I think the best ones they keep uh, in contact and are just wanting to reach out to see how you're doing. You wouldn't believe how that changes uh, your day in a, in a positive way. So, of course, I wrote him this diatribe of how all the kids are doing, what's going on in my life and stuff. But uh, I'm sure it was more than he was hoping to get in return. But uh, and I have a couple others like that uh, that I was lucky enough to uh, work for that I've reached out to. And they've always provided great advice. Sometimes it's not what you want to hear, but what you need to hear on what you should do next or how to deal with a certain situation. because they done it they've been through it themselves and they uh and so i've always heeded that advice in just about every instance once they were uh once they provided it so and i'm sure in your profession you probably have the same you know thing it's there's nothing magic to it it's just about relationships and what kind of the rules are a mentor mentee only the mentee the person being mentored can end that relationship and so it's uh it's up to you uh, as the mentor you're, you are always kind of bound if he's re somebody that you've been mentoring reaches out. You're, it's like kind of lifetime thing. You, and, 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 but only the person being mentored is the one that can end it. So and it's worked well for me. I want, I want to respect your time. You've spent so much time with me. I, I really appreciate it. Um, I, I've had the privilege of speaking to you several times be, because we, we know each other through family and we're, uh, <laughs> like you said, it's, I'm not sure what what it, the construct would look it's like. It's a I, modern family kind of construct, but it's going to come together here next September, it looks like. And so uh, it'll be a great day. I'm excited for it. That's for sure. Um, it, it's it's really a great honor to be able to sit down with you and ask you some questions. Um, so sincerely, thank you for your time and um, thank you for your, your career and your life in service. 
Thanks, Tom. And for everybody there at KYW, thanks for uh, allowing me to spend some time and for everybody in the Philadelphia area. Um, hopefully the Eagles get it in gear here before they run out of games to win. So go birds with all that up there. All right, Tom, take care. <laughs> That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Tom Rickard, and we'll have another episode out soon. 